Thank you, worship team. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to continue our study through the life of Abraham. As you and I look at our spiritual journey and our walk of faith, there's much we learn from Abraham's. I'm going to be reading the first 14 verses of Genesis chapter 21. Hopefully you'll follow along. And the Lord took note of Sarah, as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of, because of the um, lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We know your word is true. And we know everything that was written in the past was written to encourage us so we would have endurance and hope of the scriptures. Might that happen this morning. Thank you so much for this, your word, in Christ's name. Amen. Kind of catch us up a little bit. If you remember, for a quarter of a century, Abraham and Sarah had occupied God's waiting room. You thought you spent a long time in the waiting room waiting for your child? About 25 years. It's a long time in the waiting room. But that was God's waiting room. When Abraham was 75 and Sarah's wife was 65, God promised they'd have a son. And along the way, God would bring encouragement, especially when it was necessary. And he gave it to them so that their hope would not wane. And I'm sure as the years turned into decades, their anxiety, I'm certain, must have assaulted them. Yet we see that this weight cultivated their faith and reinforced a vital truth. That God may seem late to us. He may delay, but he's never late. You see, at just the right time in God's plan, Abraham and Sarah heard a cry, the cry of the promised baby. We can say for sure God keeps his promises. We can say for sure that he cannot lie. Because truth is central to his identity. And he cannot violate his own nature. And it's a good thing he keeps his promises because the Bible is full of them. One person said there's over 7,000 promises in the scriptures. It's a good thing he keeps his promises. 
Some of the promises in the Bible have yet not yet been fulfilled. And since God keeps his promises, we know for sure there is a future completion that awaits. And this includes promises to the nation of Israel, to the church, and to many, and to the future that awaits them. This fulfillment may or may not occur in our lifetime, for sure, but it will take place. And how do we know? Because God is truth. He keeps his promises, and he cannot violate his own nature. And as we consider the story of Abraham's journey with God, we should be quick to consider a couple things. This is a good time to consider some things about God's promises. One is, God is never in a hurry. He's not like us. We view all events from a limited perspective. We got like a street level view, but if you've ever uh, either gone to a sporting event or watched on TV, there's this thing called this blimp that hovers. And when they show a scene from the blimp, you can see everything. You see the parking lot, you see the crowd that's maybe down by McDonald. I mean, you see everything. You got a panoramic view, but if you're at the street level, you don't see any of that. And, and yet, we live our life with such a limited view of being at the street level. But there's a God who has a panoramic view of everything. And his plan is being played out. And he's never late in keeping his promises in his plan because he sees all events at once. He keeps complete control over time. For us, within the flow of time, waiting, though, often feels like an eternity. But if you look around, it seems like everybody's waiting for something. They're waiting for relief. It seems like many are waiting for an answer to prayer, waiting for dreams to be fulfilled, plans to come to fruition. It seems like everybody's waiting. It seems, though, that the people who grow deeper with God are the ones who, who learn to wait in anticipation, not worry. They know God's at work. They know God's at work in his time. And because of that, they have peace. God is never in a hurry. He's not frantic. He's never thrown for a loop because he didn't see that one coming. He's never in a hurry. And God never forgets his promises. He's always trustworthy. He has no memory lapse. My kids at time remind me, and I'm sure you're not alone, but you promised. Sometimes you didn't. They're trying to, you know, leverage a, a situation. But there is times you have and you forgot. Now God doesn't forget. He doesn't have memory lapses like us. He'll never forget his promises. And God's promises, we need to remember, are always linked to a context. What do you mean by that? When reading these promises of God, we need to ask some questions. One is, who is he speaking to? What are the circumstances? Specifically, is it a universal promise or is it a personal promise? I, let me give you an example. A couple universal promises. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's a universal promise. Whether you heard it the first time when Jesus spoke it or today as you sit here, it's a universal promise. He gives rest to the weary and burdened who come to him. John 5, 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. That's a universal promise. It's true for all people, all places, at all times. But then there's some personal promises the Bible speaks of. In 2 Samuel seven sixteen, 
God says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. That's a personal promise to David. It's not for all people. It's for David specifically. Genesis 15.5, we've encountered this personal promise. God said to Abraham, he took him outside, said, look up at the sky. Count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's a personal promise. In other words, you couldn't, if you're in your 80s right now, or 90s, or um, in an older age, say, hey, God said to Abraham, you're old, and when you're old, you'll have a son, so that's a promise for us too. We'll have a son. Maybe, but the promise is personally for Abraham. And so when we consider God's promises, we go through Scripture, we need to consider the promises, what context they're linked to. And I say that because as we read here in chapter 21, we're seeing the fulfillment of a personal promise. But in seeing the fulfillment of a personal promise, we're reminded of some really significant universal promises that are for you and I today. And because God's not in a hurry, he doesn't have a problem waiting. It was a quarter century again before Abraham and Sarah saw the baby. I have a question. I ask a lot of questions. Why would God wait that long? That's a long time. Why the timing of it all? I don't know. I just know his timing's perfect. I know that. I asked the question, would Abraham have been ready earlier? As we've studied his life, we've seen a lot of breakdowns in his character, right? We've seen a lot of breakdowns in his faith. I wonder if he wouldn't have been ready. What about Sarah? She didn't have it together either. So maybe in this delay, God had to say, I need to mature them to the point that they're ready for this. Because you and I need to remember something really significant here. There's more at stake with the promise than just a single baby. This is God's part of his redemptive plan, which he set in motion, which will be for all of eternity. This is a significant thing that's happening. So maybe we're not surprised he waited as he prepared Abraham and Sarah. They needed to grow. They needed to trust the fact that God was involved with a plan which was multiplying Abraham's descendants. And through our study, we've learned that they didn't always trust God's provision. They didn't always trust God's protection in his timing. Genesis 21, 1, it says a, a, few, a unique phrase in verse 2. Sarah conceived, bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time. As God had an appointed time, it was his time. It was part of his plan, his sovereign plan that was going to be played out. Now, if you're like me, there's times... You'll stop and try to ponder that whole thing. You'll be honest and say, you know what? I'm not sure about this idea of a foreordained plan. I mean, did Abraham and Sarah really have a choice in this thing? And if God's plan was set from eternity for eternity or from eternity past and for eternity, did they really have a choice? As you and I think about living out the Christian life and what awaits us, that question might come. God's sovereignty his sovereign plan, does that mean we even have a choice in it? Well, the truth is, within his plan, there's a wide latitude for human free will. God's foreordained plan does not mean we are simply robots. 
nor were Abraham and Sarah. A.W. Tozer has probably one of the best illustrations on this I came across, this analogy. It's not airtight necessarily, uh, but I think it's helpful word picture. He says, suppose a ship leaves New York City bound for Liverpool, England, with a thousand passengers on board. They're going to take a nice, easy journey. They're going to enjoy the trip. Someone on board, usually a captain, is an authority who carries papers that say you're to bring this ship into the harbor at Liverpool. After they leave New York and wave to the people on shore, the next stop is Liverpool. That's it. They're out on the ocean. Soon they lose sight of the Statue of Liberty, but they haven't come yet in sight of England coast. They're out floating around in the ocean. What do they do? Is everyone bound in chains with the captain walking around with a stick to keep them in line? No. There's some over there playing shuffleboard, others swimming, others in a tennis court. Over there, there's some looking at pictures, others are over there listening to music. You see, the passengers are perfectly free to roam around as they please on the deck of the ship. But they're not free to change the course of the ship. It's going to Liverpool, no matter what they do. They can jump off if they want to, but if they stay on board, they're going to Liverpool. Nobody can change that. And yet they're perfectly free within the confines of that ship to enjoy the trip. I like that. I think he's a good word picture. You see, we think that our capacity for self-determination is really what makes us special. We tend to think that our choices really are the ultimate end-all. But there's a sovereign plan in place. And what really makes us special isn't so much our, our ability to choose. It's that you and I are made in the image of God. And part of being made in the image of God is, yes, we have free, we have free will. We have choice without coercion. But the reality is also we're on a ship that has a destination that's not going to change. And so there's those two, I used this illustration before, there's the two tracks headed in the same direction. God's sovereignty, yet within that sovereign plan, we, just like Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah did, they made choices. And the reality I found is we have more freedom in God's promises unfolding than we'll ever have as slaves to sin. There's great freedom in living out God's promises in the midst of his plan. We live in an age of entitlement, and too many think the whole world revolves around them, and we hear it every day. What about my rights? I deserve happiness. You see, in that we lose sight of who we are, that there's a bigger plan in place that's based on God's promises and God's plan. And I think you and I, you and I mature when we look at God's plan, his timing, not as something that takes away joy, but actually increases joy and freedom. We can journey in faith, we can journey in joy, and we can journey in freedom because God keeps his promises. That you and I can be sure, and that one day the dock will, the boat will get where it's supposed to get, where it's supposed to go. And you and I can rest in that and find great freedom in that. And as we see chapter 21, we see that God, God's promises are realized. The Lord provides this baby, Isaac. Verse 3, we come across this that uh, they named the son Isaac. The significance of the name Isaac, which means laughter in Hebrew, seems to change between the time of the promise and the moment of its fulfillment. I mean, think about it. When God had earlier made known to Sarah that she would conceive in her old age, remember Abraham fell on his face and laughed in disbelief. 
Likewise, Sarah laughed incredulously when she heard the promise of a son. So before he was even conceived, the son was named Isaac, which means laughter, in order to remind Abraham and Sarah of their faithless laughter in the face of God's promise. Later, though, when this unbelievable promise actually came true, the laughter became one of rejoicing. Thus Abraham, or Isaac's name, laughter. And so the name Isaac took on a new meaning. Instead of the reminder of something negative, i.e. Abraham and Sarah's disbelief, the name became a permanent memorial of something positive, their cheerfulness, their joy over God's faithfulness in keeping his promise. We read in verse 4 and 5 that Abraham obeys God. Now, sometimes when you fly through, I, think about this for a second. Abraham's, he's got to be pumped. Here's 25 years. That's a long time. Here's the boy. And yet he was diligent to make sure he obeyed what God commanded him to obey. I'm sure he was excited, but he has an obedient heart. Circumcised on the eighth day, it was a sign of the boy's participation in God's plan. In verse 5, this question Abraham asked in Genesis 17, 17 is answered. The promise. Abraham asked, shall a man in such an old age bear a son? And God said yes, and here the answer is yes. It's the fulfillment of a promise. Now, I came across a passage that is incredibly encouraging. In Romans 4. It's about Abraham. But I want you to see something of what Paul says, looking back. Romans 4, I'm going to read verse 13, then verse 18 through 21. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then verse 18 through 21. It says this, In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Isn't that great? I look at verse 20, example of what I'll call an anchoring faith. Yet with respect to the promises of God, he did not waver in unbelief. He grew strong in his faith, fully convinced. God was able to do all that he had promised. That's anchoring faith. And Abraham, throughout these 25 years, had developed this anchoring faith especially when he got closer here at this time. And so you and I can have an anchoring faith, respect to the promises of God. We don't have to waver in unbelief. But you and I can grow strong in faith and give glory to God as we trust in him, as Abraham did. Now what does Sarah do in this, verse 6 and 7? She says, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She said in verse 7, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's interesting, the end of verse 7, kind of the word order really is kind of saying this idea of, I've borne this old man a son. It's kind of an interesting way to put it. Uh, this old guy over here, I bore him a son. 
not that she's a spring chicken either, but we'll ignore that part of it. Uh, this old man, I gave him a son. It's kind of where she's going with it. And uh, I mean, to really think about this, imagine you're in a park and you see an old couple with walkers pushing a stroller. That's the picture you get. And uh, you, would, you would laugh too. And so that's kind of the reality of what's going on here. And, uh, and I was just was reminded as I read that of how difficult this would have been to, to really believe it. I mean, it's like how many times would they have come over and over and over, but yet they, they had to do some things in the midst of that belief to actually carry it out. In other words, put it this way, many people believe in Jesus, but they don't trust God. What do you mean? Many believe in Jesus for salvation, but practical outworking day to day by day, they don't trust God. They doubt Him, whether it be provision or His leading or whatever it is. Thus, their life is in great turmoil. Abraham and Sarah not only needed to believe the promise, but they needed to trust God day by day in the outworking of that promise. Because there's consequences when you and I rush God's plan. And in the midst of their rejoicing, it becomes tinged a little bit with some regret. And that's what we picked up in verse 9. The birth of this long-awaited son gave Abraham and Sarah great joy, but their delight was met with the reality of consequences of years earlier when they tried to rush God's plan. Specifically, it was 15 years earlier. They tried to rush this plan of this child by scheming to have a son on their own terms and according to their own timing. Sarah suggested, Abraham, why don't you go sleep with my servant Hagar and she'll give us a son. After all, God promised us a son. And so, let's help them out. They walked by sight, not by faith, for sure at that time. So Abraham did, Hagar conceived, and nine months later Ishmael was born. You could say Ishmael was born of a fleshly attempt. As a matter of fact, that's not really the phrase I came up with. It's in Galatians 4, if you'll read about it. He is a child born of the flesh, whereas Isaac is a promise born of the spirit. Flesh indicating man's efforts. Flesh indicating man and women trying to rush God's plan. That's, that's of the flesh. That's not a promise, a fulfilling of the promise, which is of the spirit. That's Isaac. Now, as we think about this text as we go through it, we read in verse 10, Therefore she said to Abraham, she being Sarah, Drive out this maid and their son. Why? Well, think about it. Ishmael's been the son 14 years. Abraham, as you, your dad, you know you spend time with your sons, you raise them, you train them. And, and it's been Abraham and Ishmael. That's all Ishmael's known. He's been the, he's been the main guy. The kid, he's gotten all the attention. And I'm sure he probably forgot maybe some of the things he heard about this promised child coming. All of a sudden, Isaac's born. Now there's a rival in the home. Not only a rival, I'm sure Ishmael knew he was a son of convenience. He wasn't the child of promise. And so what happened? During the weaning process, which usually, believe it or not, back in the day was about three years, they believe. So, Isaac's about three, Ishmael's about 17. And we read that Ishmael mocked Isaac. 
think bullied. And that's the idea. He bullied the three-year-old. Now, if you're a mom, you would get defensive too, right? And so Sarah goes to Abraham and says, he's mocking our son, Isaac. Get rid of him. Get rid of Hagar. And send him away. Now, Sarah could have demanded. Sarah could have encouraged strongly, but she couldn't issue that. That was Abraham. He was the head of the home. And so try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes. No wonder we read, he was greatly distressed, verse 11. And then we read in verse 12, God said to Abraham, don't be distressed. So there's an emphasis here of Abraham being distressed, wouldn't you? I mean, you've raised this boy 17 years. And now he's stuck between a wife who wants him gone and a love he has for his son. And he's greatly distressed. He, he needs direction. He doesn't know what to do. God steps in and gives him some direction. Isaac was a true promised child. There's no doubt about that. But God says, I'm going to take care of him. Don't worry, I have a plan for Ishmael. Now he's 17, and back then he'd be considered a man old enough to be married. And so when we read Ishmael and Hagar leaving, we're not talking a little boy. We're talking a, a young man. And so he can take care of, of his mom and and uh, what we read about in the following verses is kind of unique about the role, how it kind of changes, and, but we're not studying them per se. But even in that, we read as, as, as Hagar is sent away uh, with Ishmael, God makes promises to Hagar, and he promises, I'll take care of you. Don't worry, my plan is still being played out. And if you're a single parent, I encourage you to read the rest of this chapter. You'll find great encouragement as God takes care of a single mom who's alone with her boy. It's amazing, no matter what stage in life you are, God speaks to circumstances, and there's carry-out principles for you as well in there. But for three years, this conflict brewed. It caused tension between Abraham and Sarah, Sarah and Hagar, and Ishmael and Isaac. In other words, there are still consequences. God does forgive sin, no doubt about it. But at times, the consequences linger, and there's, it doesn't mean he hasn't forgiven us. It just means there's consequences of our behavior, so we need to be careful. I also find interesting throughout this text that God calls Ishmael lad, whereas Abraham and Sarah and Hagar call him a child. God doesn't call Ishmael a child here. It's almost as if God is minimizing the point that this man is not the promised child. Isaac is. He's a lad. Important, but he's not the promised child here. God wants to make sure that's clear. But God goes on to show, whether it's Abraham, Sarah, or Hagar, that he keeps his promises, that he's a promise-keeping God. He tells Hagar that she's not alone, that God saw her, that God would help her, God would provide for her. He'd care for her. As a matter of fact, throughout this whole account, we see God telling Abraham and promising, it's going to be okay. I'll take care of things. And God is throughout this talking about promises and making promises that people could anchor to. God wanted each of these persons to know in this account and us that he's in control. That his promises are sure. And that they were not alone. That they could stand on his word. And that he wanted us to remember even today. That you and I and our circumstances aren't alone. Our challenges are different than Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, but God is still God. 
He still gives strength to the weary. He still gives peace to the troubled. He still gives hope to the disillusioned. He still will never leave us nor forsake us. And we need to remember God always, always keeps his promises. As I look at this story as a whole, as we looked at our whole study, I, you and I have been allowed by God's Spirit to see that there's times they didn't trust God's promises. They struggled. They found it difficult. And they doubted. And if you're honest, that's not unique to Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Um, it, it would be true of us too. There are times we struggle with life and we find it difficult as well to trust His promises. This week, last night as I was sitting down and my mind went back to just this week of, of many things that I, I came across and people I talked with and, and uh, their precious people and friends whose parents are dying, of children who are being hurt, people in real brokenness and real burdens, people in conflict. And I found myself praying as I went through that they would cling to God's promises even when life seems dark. Even when it seems like they're in the middle of the valley and there's no way out of the valley. It's my prayer for them this week and still is that they would cling to God's promises. Years ago when I was younger, I, uh, I worked construction. And uh, I worked with a great group of guys. And, and, uh, but one thing is when we set rafters, they would always put me in the middle. Scott's going to relate to this. When you're setting rafters, you'd rather be on the outside walls because they don't move. When you're in the middle of a long rafter and you're standing on the middle, it bows and it's, it's all over the map. And you're hanging on for dear life. You're trying to hold on to the rafter that's, that's anchored and you're flinging all over the place. And you're moving and moving and the guys would often say, hey, quit moving. Yeah, right. It's like jello. You're standing on jello. And I remember one time I fell. And my foot slipped, I don't know how, and, and so the rafters, I mean, it's tipping. I'm falling, and fortunately, I grabbed a hold of one of the rafters that was anchored. Caught myself. I was praising Jesus that day. It was a long fall. And, uh, and, and I clung to that thing. And I was able to find uh, the stability of that rafter, and it was able to climb up to safety and then was the continual dummy as I continued to set rafters. Um, but I lost sure footing. And, and I, I was, began to fall. And the only thing that kept me from falling was I grabbed to something that was solid. I grabbed, to some, to grabbed hold of something that was anchored. And it was all I had to grab hold of. There was nothing else. It was just that one two-by-four that saved my neck. And this morning, you might have lost your footing, and you might feel like you're falling, and you might feel like the foundations you thought were steady are becoming quite wobbly. And you're like, if I could just find a hold of something to grab hold of that wouldn't shake or wobble, that wouldn't fail, if I could just grab a hold of something that was stable and sure, and I'm here to tell you, you can grab onto God's promises. They're stable. They're sure they'll never fail you. There's times, to be frankly honest, it's all you've got to hold on to. There is nothing else. But it's the one thing that will never fail you. It's God's promises. He always keeps them. Always. 
You can count on it. They're stable. And although you find yourself in a valley, the promise of God is he'll lead you out. Might not take you out, but he's going to lead you out of it. He might have led you into it. There might be things like Abraham and Sarah you need to learn. But the promise of God is he will lead you out of it. That you can hope. That you can bank on. I want you to listen to the testimony of a couple people I came across. This man said, I'm an older gentleman in my 50s. And when I was young, I was assaulted by a friend of the family's. And I lost memories until my early 20s dealing with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Going through therapy where I'm going in about two weeks to relive the assault in my mind and then tell it to the therapist word for word. But I think it's too late for me. My life and my choices since then were due to the hurt then and now, and I don't see me really winning this war. I wonder, is there hope when they feel like there is none? Then there's these words from another young lady. Please pray for me. I'm going through the hardest thing I've ever gone through. I'm struggling with depression, anxiety, and very bad suicidal thoughts. Please pray for me. What do they need? They need to cling to the promises of God, and it might be the only thing they have, but it's enough. It's the only thing that's anchored in reality. It's the only thing anchored in truth, and it will not give way. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us why. For as many as the promises of God are in Christ, they are yes. They're yes. And what Paul is saying, and what God is saying to you, and because of Christ and his resurrection, there's an amen to God's promises. And when God amens it, he says, they'll never fail you. I can assure you, you can cling to them, that I will, I will not fail, I'll never fail you, and I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. His promises never fail. Might you and I cling to them this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it would be nice, I think, some days to be able to stand up here and know that in everybody's life and everybody's heart, things are really rosy. That they're really good. and That we're all walking in complete faith and there's no doubt present in our life. And, and we're experiencing great joy and freedom. And, and, and that would be really great if it was all of us. But the reality is, as we walk this earth, that's just not true. Some of us are experiencing great turmoil, deep doubts, like this man, Jeff, who said, I, I don't know if I can win this war, who wonders if there is hope. And you hear his words, and to be frankly honest, they're your words this morning. Maybe like this young girl, depression is like a wet blanket come over you. You're not sure whether you're going to be able to get through it. Lord, my prayer this morning is for each person here that we would cling to your promises. So many you gave in the word. Thousands. Because you knew as we go through this life, we would need them. 
We would need something sure, something stable. We would need something that would never fail. And so you gave us your very great and precious promises. Might we cling to them? Might we hold fast to them? Even when the night is darkest, even when the valley seems the deepest, might we cling and find that in Christ they are all yes. And that there is hope. There's hope because of you, Jesus. And that you are the one really actually holding us. And so might we cling to that promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so, Lord, I don't know what that looks like in each life here. But I do know that each step we take each day by day, might we take it holding firm to your promise. And for that, we give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name I pray.